And please stand with me to hear God's word from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, as we continue our study through Mark's Gospel this morning. Beginning in verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And Mark adds an explanation because he's writing by this time to Gentiles, mainly in Rome, who wouldn't know what was going on here. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and you do many things like that. And again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh boy, Jesus and the Pharisees. As we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, the tension, the conflict is just really building, it's escalating. And again, we have to get past thinking, you know, we're used to think Pharisees, bad guys. Maybe if we've been around the Bible a while. But we have to just remember again that that is not how they were viewed at the time. If you think and realize that Israel was God's chosen people of all the nations of the earth, among God's special chosen people, the Pharisees were the seriously devoted, separated, consecrated ones. And the scribes that are referred to, the teachers of the law, they're the theological and religious expert. They were originally called scribes because their main task was copying down God's Word again and again and again, and thereby mastering it in order that they could teach it. And so it is extraordinary now, now that Messiah, the long-awaited, all the Scriptures have been pointing to Him, Messiah has showed up, and there is such tension between the religious elite among the people of God and Jesus the Messiah himself. 
And that's what we break into in the middle here of Mark's Gospel in chapter 7. And so we see that the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem. Jesus is ministering in Galilee now. They've been dispatched to expand their interrogation so that they can come up with evidence to cause trouble for Jesus. And so some of his, and they come down, they gather around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were undefiled, that is, unwashed, and that's exactly what they wanted to connect with. That's exactly the kind of evidence that they wanted to have regarding Jesus. And as I said, Mark, writing to, these are, of course, years later, writing to a Gentile audience, kind of fills in what's going on. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. And the further elaboration, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. It might mean they don't eat what they, they don't eat until they wash what they've purchased. It probably means because they've come into contact with Gentiles, they wash themselves. And so, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples comply? Why don't your disciples walk according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Now, one of the key phrases throughout this passage, if we're going to understand it correctly, is that phrase, the tradition of the elders. It can sound kind of noble, uh, but in this case, it really hasn't become that. The tradition of the elders was the oral commentary handed down generation to generation alongside the actually inspired Scripture. So you could think of it as commentaries, and these were oral traditions, and we're very much tied to written text, and so oral to us, it's like, well, is that going to stay very reliable? But in these cultures, it did, so that wasn't the problem. They would memorize vast amounts that they could orally repeat and recite. And so that's what's being referred to throughout this passage, the tradition of the elders, this oral commentary added alongside inspired Scripture, especially from what God gave to Moses. The oral tradition was supposed to accurately explain and apply and preserve the Word of God. You could almost think of it as, you know, what you have in a study Bible. You've got the actual words of God, and then you've got notes that are attached that are supposed to explain and elaborate and apply in a contemporary setting what the inspired words of God were telling you. But instead, by this time, it ends up adding to and going beyond, and as Jesus says here, actually distorting and replacing God's own word. For example, in this matter, the actual word of God only commanded the priests to do this kind of washing. And not for all of these scenarios, even for the priests. But the Pharisees were kind of in the mode of 
Well, in order to really make sure we obey the Word of God and what God has commanded, we're going to fence it in. We're going to add some layers. We're going to sort of intensify it. So the motivation might have been good, but it was still adding to the Word of God. It was still going beyond what Scripture actually called for and required. But what is really striking to me is that after they've raised this objection, in his immediate response, Jesus doesn't even reply to their objection and to their complaint and accusation. He doesn't give a rebuttal to the specific argument. Instead, he responds to their entire attitude and outlook and, in fact, their entire religious system. And he is uncompromising in his criticism. You know, if you actually pay attention to the Bible and the New Testament, just a little footnote, there is a lot of reproof. There is a lot of stern and firm, and I just don't think Jesus would make very many of the, or certainly Paul would make very many of the Christian conference circuits. They're just not upbeat enough. They're just not positive enough. You just find it and. You know, what he says here to fellow clergymen, so to speak, to the religious leaders of his day, just imagine hearing this from him. He replied, verse 6, Isaiah was right about you. Isaiah was right when he prophesied, hey, you appear in scriptures. Not in a good way. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. The word, as we've talked about before, it just meant literally in the culture, actors. Because at, it, it, the two Greek words mask over, over the face. And so actors in that time in the theater wasn't so much the full cut. They would wear the mask of whatever character they were portraying. And you'd know who they were by which mask they were wearing. So it came to mean Someone who presents himself to be other than what, he's real, what he really is. That the outward appearance doesn't match the actual reality of who that person is. And so, Jesus, citing Isaiah, they're supposed to be the expert on the prophets and the scriptures, and he's using them against him. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. Please notice here that once again, the written down words of God are the authority that even Jesus, the Son of God, relies on and depends on. And then he quotes the prophecy, the passage from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, which was true of the hard-hearted Israelites of his own day, and Jesus is saying, you're reproducing those same attitudes now. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And how has that come to manifest itself? They worship me in vain. And their teachings are but rules taught by men, or the older translations, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines 
the commandments of men. With their lips, with their words, with their professed teaching and exposition, even, they honor him. But simultaneously, their hearts, God sees and knows, are light years away. And when that happens, Jesus says, their worship, and the word means a proper conduct in relation to those worthy of honor. So again, as we've talked about, worship isn't mainly in the Bible singing, although singing praise is one aspect of it. Worship is our all-of-life devotion lived out in service and obedience to God, including our religious practices. And Jesus is saying their worship now is pointless. It's just they might as well not even be doing it. It's in vain. And again, remember, he's talking about the spiritual religious elite among the covenant people of God, the nation that belongs to him of all the nations of the earth. They worship me in vain. Their teachings, and that word means their course of instruction, are rules taught by men. They're not exposition of my word anymore. They and their teaching ministry don't really unfold my word, given through Moses, given through the prophets. Now it's man-made teaching. It's humanly devised teaching. This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts what they really love and care about, what they're really aiming at in their religion and in their spirituality. That's what hearts mean. Their hearts are far from me all the while they're maintaining the singing, the speaking, the praying, the scripture reading. Is that frightening to you at all that that could even happen? That that is a real possibility? among those who, again, should have been at the forefront of their devotion to God. Their entire religion now, their spirituality, Jesus says, is futile because their teachings, God says, all their ideas about me and relating to me are not from me. They're man-made from their own imaginations. They don't rightly describe me in their teachings because they don't stick to my word. They don't rightly describe how to relate to me, how to know me. So how can they ever be saved? Jesus goes further. You have let go of, abandoned, the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men, the man-made religious teachings. And spirituality. You've made progressively and effectually a deliberate trade, a deliberate swap. You had the Word of God, you let go of that, and then you started doing your teaching, your explaining, your theologizing, your philosophizing about how to relate to God, about how to do ministry, about how to do worship, whatever you might want to say, and you've made a deliberate trade. You've let go of of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he continues, and that's what I mean, it's just unrelenting, unrelenting. 
He says in verse 9, you have a fine way, let me just pause for a minute, because that's a good translation of the Greek. And what is Jesus doing there? He's being sarcastic. Every now and then, you know, people are like, sarcasm, satire, that's got no place at all in the Christian communication and the Christian... Well, Jesus does it and so does Paul. Remember what Paul calls the false apostles in 2 Corinthians? Super apostles. Does he mean, wow, they're the best? No, he most certainly does not. He's being sarcastic. Because sometimes in human communication, that really gets your attention. And so when Jesus says here, you have a fine way, he doesn't mean, that's fine. He's being sarcastic. You have, you've got it down to a science. You are so skilled at this. You're so good at this, Jesus said, of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own tradition. That's even a more radical move. You're good at it. You can navigate around the Bible and still have it in the room still have it in the meanings, still cite it when you write, or when you blog, or whatever it might be. And yet, in the midst of doing that, you're setting aside the commands of God. That takes some skill, Jesus says. And then he gives an example. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. By the way, according to Exodus, who said, honor your father and mother? God did. And in Matthew's account, it says God said. Just one more reminder, what Augustine reminded us, what Scripture says, God says. What Moses, under inspiration, says, God says. And the other way around as well. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother is to be put to death. In other words, in godly, from the Bible, from the Word of God religion, the honor of parents is enormously important. And we've talked about why before. Because parents were supposed to be those already devoted to God, already fearing God and loving God. And so they were to be respected and revered primarily because of their office and function of passing on authentic devotion to God from one generation to another. That primarily is why it's one of the Ten Commandments. Honor, be in the habit of honoring and respecting and deferring to and following the lead of your father and your mother. And the other way it's manifested, so then... If you curse father or mother, you put to death. That's pretty robust. But you say, Jesus says, and now he's going to cite a provision of their oral tradition that is built up over the centuries. You say, the Bible says honor, and certainly honoring your parents includes caring for them, providing for them in their time of need, whatever that need might be caused by. But you say, 
that if anyone declares that what have, might have, have been used to help their father or mother is korban. The Hebrew and Aramaic word, it means devoted to God, given to God. Then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Now, we've got to kind of figure out what korban is. One commentator talked about in some ways it's like an irrevocable trust. The idea is that you could devote your assets to God, to the service of the temple, and when you did that, that wouldn't really fully transfer it until you died. So in a certain sense, you'd still have access to it. Some commentator says you could still draw interest from it, but it wouldn't go to your parents. Now, it's hard to figure out exactly what might have motivated this. Some commentators said of, of an anger toward parents, a just a, a breakdown in the relations, this idea, I don't want my assets going to the sport and support and care of my parents, so I'm going to give them to God. Whatever might have triggered the initial vow of Corban, then even if the person later changed their mind, and wanted to use the assets to help their parents after all, the tradition of the elders says, nope, you've made a vow to God. You can never break a vow to God, which in general is true. But in other words, they configure things in such a way that the obvious command of God, honor your parents, including by supporting them, could be loopholed so that you didn't have to do it after all. And so that actually you weren't allowed to do it after all. And that's why Jesus says in verse 12, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. And so it's a bizarre way that they've put things together in this oral tradition of the elders. But Jesus' summary of it is in verse 13. Thus, you nullify the word of God by what means? By your tradition that you've handed down. You nullify the word of God by your commentary on the word of God. You nullify the word of God by the teachings that you say are explanations of the word of God. It's really an extraordinary thing to see that's going on. The Pharisees had come to the place, when you think about it more deeply, when engaging with God and honoring God was not really the driving principle of their religion. That's not what they were mainly about. Maybe they were trying to preserve their ethnic identity as a nation, and their uniqueness in a nationalistic way. Maybe their self-centered purpose in their midst of their religiousness was just an expression of the natural legalism that is the constant temptation of man and his spiritual pride. But what the Bible is saying is it's possible for deeply devout and intensely religious people for their religion not to be mainly about anymore really knowing and honoring God. That's what the Pharisees extraordinarily have become. 
Paul would later write about those who have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's not a well-informed, it's not a Bible truth-shaped zeal. And it has here this terrible effect. It ruins something like honoring your parents, one of the big ten of the Ten Commandments. But even more, when Messiah shows up, you end up being on the other side. Again, just encourage, they should not be hunting him down, trying to build a case against him in order to get rid of him. Early in the Gospel of Mark, they were ticked off enough that it said they were plotting to find a way to destroy him. If your engaging with the Word of God leads you to want to destroy the Son of God, something has gone really, really badly. And so, you know, I just have to read this and realize if that could happen to them, if it could happen to the people of Isaiah's day before them, why would I dream that that's even kind of a remote possibility in my own religion and religiousness and ideas of God and spirituality? It could happen because they had made a habit, they'd gotten skilled at twisting, they wouldn't call it that, but misinterpreting Scripture and scriptural precepts and ideas and words to serve their self-centered definitions, to further their self-centered agendas. And so as long as some self-centered agenda is at the heart of our religion and religiousness, it's bound to have a distorting effect. Our Christian faith, our Christian religion will only be authentic when it is aimed at living life according to God's purpose for our lives, defined by His rightly interpreted Word. And religion only remains authentic when we continually let the Word of God define, first of all, the highest purpose of our lives, to glorify God to know Him, to treat God as God. So first the Bible teaches us that, but then we have to keep listening to it and living in submission to it to understand what that God-glorifying life looks, at, looks like. In contrast, a self-glorifying purpose for living, for our religion too, will find ways to distort even Scripture and our understanding of Scripture and Bible concepts so that it falls in line with this self-defined primary purpose. Examples today, and I'll just only mention, but I encourage you to reflect on them as you customize your own application. God and the things of God and religion can be commandeered for political purposes. And what we really care about God and the things of God are more about some political purpose or a therapeutic purpose. Some people engage with religion to be kind of soothed and comforted and you know just sort of uh, helped along the way as they pursue their own self-centered purpose in life. 
They want God to team up with them to make sure that that happens. Some people want God to help them for a career purpose, give them success and business. And the religion and religiousness is really pretty tied to that. Or a self-esteem purpose. Some people, and all of these things are a part of authentic religion. And they are a part of rightly engaging with God. But when they're made the main thing, when they're made the central thing, something even, we've talked about the fifth commandment, but something even as important as successful parenting. That can't be the main thing. It can't be, I kind of have ignored God all my life, but you know, now I have a child and I want them to, to do well. I want them to succeed. I want them really to stay out of trouble and scandal and danger. So I better attach to the church and I better kind of get connected. And if that's the main thing that's driving, and by the way, when you say successfully parenting, what will you call success? Worldly? That they'll be impressive in worldly standards? Or that they'll be someone who deeply loves God and is devoted to God? For some, Sunday morning gatherings seem to be mostly about getting revved up by the production that's put on. We think of the more obvious examples, like the health and wealth gospel. I mean, something more obvious, it's a little easier to spot. Do the health and wealth gospel preachers use the Bible? Yeah, they do. They hold it up. They say a pledge about it as they start to preach. They use the Word of God, but at the heart of engaging with God is not really knowing and glorifying Him. It's some other self-serving purpose. We've talked before. There is the study, a major study that was done about what are young people who are leaving evangelical churches, including big churches, mega churches mainly, as they leave these professedly evangelical ministries, what are they leaving with? And there's now a well-known term. We've talked about it. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. That is the alternative to Christianity that students from Christian churches are actually picking up. That is, moralistic, be good, therapeutic, God's there to help you out and to you know, soothe you and to calm you whenever you face trouble, but deism, but he's not all that involved. So you know, you're still mainly the one calling the shots. All I'm saying is there are major studies to show that among us, this separate religion, has grown up, this separate way of thinking. Maybe most ironic of all, the self-centeredness that has now kind of even crept into our view of conversion and getting saved. As we've reconceived even salvation, mainly in terms of, I'm in a predicament, I'm headed to hell, I'd like to get that fixed. Oh good, now I can go to heaven instead. Do you have a heart for God now? Do you love God now? Are you devoted to the glory of God now? I don't know. That hasn't come up. But I'm in because I've made the gesture of decision. And in practical terms, the fundamental reason that these distortions happen 
is when professing Christians lose sight of the central principle, central principle of true Christianity, treating God as God. That's one way to say it. Putting Jesus first. That's what Colossians 1 says, that he might come to have first place in everything. I'm running out of time, so I've got to go fast. Maybe the best way I can put it is this way. What I really want, you to, uh, what I really want us all to be caring about and committed to is treat God as God. One catechism says, who's the first and best of beings? And the answer is, God's the first and best of beings. So just always put him first. That's all I'm really saying. Including in your religiousness, including in your practiced out spirituality. Always really truly put him first. In every decision, does anyone dispute it? Is it possible that that couldn't be right? That given who he is and what he is and what he's done and what he's doing and what he will do, his greatness, his grace, his majesty, his power, his mercy, his love, given how glorious and great he is, could it ever not be right to treat God as God and give him the first place gladly, gratefully in everything? Or, let me put it a different way, very personal Live like Mr. Baldwin. And some of you, and I mentioned it Wednesday night, and some of the time from teaching and preaching, I mentioned the Baldwins. And maybe, maybe the first time you've heard of them, so I'll just say enough about them. When I first became a Christian, this was this wonderful Christian family who knew that my own family, my own parents weren't Christians, weren't devoted to God, so they just kind of lovingly took me in. And it was Mr. and Mrs. Baldwin and their sons, Bill and Jim, and their daughter, Margaret. And they just showed me what it looked like to live a life where God always came first, and they were glad for it to be that way. Now, the kids had to grow into it. They didn't arrive that way. They had to learn it along the way, but they did learn it. Mr. Baldwin was an employee of Dayton Power and Light, he came to faith in Christ himself, started to learn what it meant to please the Lord, and he became a professor at Cedarville College. So when I went to Cedarville, they were already there. Jim was my roommate, and the Baldwins very graciously and generously let me live with them uh, rent-free so I could save that money because they knew that my family at the time, uh, well, anyway, so they were, it was very hospitable. And so some people, you know, you see them in church and like, well, that's a pretty pious, God-fearing kind of person. But I watch them everywhere. And I'm not saying they're perfect, but I am saying that they showed me in those early, early steps of my own Christian life what it meant in every circumstance and situation to put God first. And why... Were they formed into that kind of person? Because they also showed me what it was to really revere the Word of God. They were in church receiving God's Word, the teaching of God's Word all the time, not some grudgingly, oh, brother. It was another time to learn about God and the things of God. 
and they were glad to do it. They loved to do it. They were cheerful fundamentalists. They were strict. They were scrupulous because they wanted to please God in everything. But all the students at Wilmington High School on a Sunday night would be happy to get an invitation to the Baldwins for basketball and pizza because of the joyful, cheerful kind of God-loving people that they were. Mr. Baldwin went to be with the Lord, sorry, <laughs> went to be with the Lord this past Wednesday, planned to go down and be with them at the memorial service on Tuesday, the Lord and Spirit Airlines willing. But it's just going to be a great time to remember someone who got this right, the main thing, the main thing. If you don't, if I don't get this right, then everything else in my religiousness really couldn't be right. And what's that? Put God first. Let God be God. And know that the only way you'll stay on track doing that is continuously and as a matter of principle and conviction and glad habit, test and measure everything in your religion, in your life, by every word that's come from the mouth of God, not even from the writings of men. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help us learn from the cautionary tale of what the Pharisees had turned into. Zealous, and way off. Religious, but the religion and their worship was now, in God's eyes, pointless. Because along the way, the Word of God was not teaching them any longer what the whole purpose of life was, to treat you as God. And along the way, they had learned skills even to kind of twist and to skewer it so that it fit with their own purposes and their own agenda in the midst of all the honoring that they did with their lips, but not with their lives and not with their hearts. And so, Lord, let us imitate a very different way of living by your word, first to learn what life and religion are all about, putting Jesus first, and then living and learning by that same word as to what that looks like in every area of life, including our life as church together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.